Let's pray to prepare to hear God's word this morning. Lord, as we come now to the preaching of your word, please remove all distractions. And please let us see these great events that have long passed and how they apply to us today. And help us to learn and to grow and to go faithfully. Enable me to communicate your truth, the power of your spirit. Amen. If you're visiting or you haven't been here, we are surveying the landscape as we work our way through Paul's first missionary journey. And it's important to remember that the scriptures were written for us, they were not written to us. Uh, the book of Acts was originally penned to a man by the name of Theophilus. Look there at Acts 1, verse 1. It's on the screen. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, Acts serves as a second volume, first volume being Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and there he refers to Theophilus as most excellent, which means that he was likely a man of wealth and social standing, um, some kind of a dignitary. He may well have been um, a Roman official who was catechized, taught the scriptures, the, the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and was a convert. And here, Luke records the extension of the kingdom that the Lord inaugurated when he came to earth. Last week, we looked, we did an overview, really, chapter 13 and 14. We focused in on, on Paul's sermon in chapter 13, this morning, we move on into chapter 14. I'll be doing another overview because we want this all to be connected in our minds and in our hearts to see how this applies to us to this very day. So if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 14. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands." But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, 
said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples." This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, as they carry out the Great Commission, as they preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we're, we're seeing a familiar pattern everywhere they go. Conviction leading to faith and trust and obstinance. Obstinance. Resulting in unbelieving opposition. Conviction, belief, obstinance, opposition. It's always the case. When, it's always the case, when people preach the gospel without 
compromising the message. It inevitably provokes division. And it provokes intense cultural pressure as they, the culture, attempt to poison the minds of those listening to the gospel. Witness? Question, how do you, here this morning, respond to cultural pressure? You know, to all the the discussions about social harmony. To the desires and attitudes society insists you must have if you want to lead a hassle-free life. Promising blessing if you bow down and to curse and ruin you if you fail to meet their demands. Professing Christians are dropping like flies to that pressure. Adopting unbiblical, liberal views of life and culture. Bowing down so as to maintain social harmony. You see it? You don't have to look far. The culture presses to advocate their own form of human righteousness. Truth is relative, they say. Which means your Jesus evangelism is disrupting the harmony of our politically correct religious movement. To say that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, that's hate speech. Paul said what in Romans 1? Look at it on the screen. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel's the power of God unleashed. You know, I have seen over the years so many professing Christians bow out of the church and bow down to the golden calf of political correctness as they kowtow to their liberal views of life and scripture. Question, how might that affect the efforts of true gospel preaching when people who profess to be Christian are twisting the scripture, changing the message? You know, what about those who are faithful to the call? I'm talking about ministers and congregants faithful to the call who do not compromise and water down the truth of God. They refuse to do so. With all the antagonism, with all the resistance, with all the the obstinance to truth, we may question in our minds, does God really attend his word and truly bear fruit through gospel ministry to keep people walking amidst the opposition and all of the cultural pressure to conform? Or 
Is it like seed thrown out by the sower falling on fallow ground to be choked by the pressures of this world, the temptations that we face, and by the devil himself? Causing some who serve faithfully within the church of Jesus Christ to wonder, is my labor in vain? Will they forget this truth? Now, if that's you, one who's faithful and wonders, Sunday school teachers, for instance, who labor all week to prepare a study and present it before children, and you wonder not, will they remember this? But perhaps you wonder how long before they forget this. Is God faithful amidst the pressure and amidst the opposition? If you wonder, is my work in vain, you're in good company. Because Paul, throughout his ministry, wondered the same thing. As he and Barnabas set out from Antioch by the power of the Holy Spirit, anointed by Almighty God, they go out and they start these fledgling churches throughout this region, widely known as Galatia. Map, please. Establishing infant churches. Watch this. See that? Can you see it? Is it up there? Eh, it doesn't show up on the screen too well, but that's okay. Antioch on the coast to Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos, they go north to Perga, they go up to Antioch, Pisidia, they move towards, towards the right inland, we see, they go to Lystra, Iconium, they go to Derby. they turn back around and they go back and revisit all these places that they plant these fledgling infant churches, ministry. And all along the way, they must leave these infant churches on their own. They had no network to connect with, beloved. They didn't have a church down the street. They were hundred miles, hundreds of miles apart from one another, 50, 60, 100 miles plus. Surrounded by the enemies of the gospel, you have Jews on the one hand who, who viewed the church as heretical, as traitors to the traditions passed down. You have the Romans, on the other hand, who viewed Christians as an increasing threat to the way in which the marketplace would operate because all of their little idolatrous trinkets, no one would buy. Harming the market because of transformed lives. You know, we know from Paul's own letters that he worried about those churches. They were very vulnerable. He knew this. He understood this. He, he worries for them. He wonders, is my work in vain? And from a human perspective, we can appreciate that view. Amen? When the church in Galatia, for instance, when, when Paul learns of some things that they're believing in, he says, I'm afraid that I have labored, labored over you in vain. To the Philippians, he said, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor did I toil in vain. So hold fast. Run faithfully. 
obey the gospel. You know what obey the gospel means? Believe it and keep on believing it. That's what obedience to the gospel is. You believe it. You embrace it. You trust. You follow. You run. You walk faithfully. Run the race with endurance. The race set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and finisher of the faith. See, that's the risk of leaving these people in these places, saying goodbye because you are committing these churches unto themselves. No doubt, under the plurality of elders, we'll see that in a little while, but nevertheless, they were all young in the faith. And Paul was concerned, hoping and praying for the best as many of us can appreciate and understand in our own circumstances, amen? You don't even have to be in missions to relate to this. You send your kids off to college, you send them off into the military, or you even send these young, young ones off to school, you, you have to say goodbye. You have no control. You're giving up control. And you wonder, you hope, and you pray. So as Paul, in faith, leaves these churches to fend for themselves, entrusting them to God, okay? There is a pattern here for us to think about, to learn from, how we too can walk well, lead well, and leave well, entrusting the work of the ministry to one another, okay? This is what we're after this, this morning. Things that Paul does, things he says, teaching us how to prepare people for unknown challenges in an unbelieving world. To meet the, the, the unknown tribulations, the encounters that we will face as we pursue the kingdom of Jesus Christ. How do we prepare our children? How do we prepare ourselves in the church? There's some primary features of this first missionary journey, features that we must apply and uphold in our day and onward, forward, until our Lord Jesus returns. What does Paul say? What does he do? What gives him hope? Amen? That's the introduction. So we're going to work our way through chapters 13 and 14 again, and we're going to learn these lessons to close out this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. So out of Antioch, okay, we see the leading of the Spirit, the power of the Word of God, and the joy of forgiveness of sins proclaimed. This is what we have witnessed thus far. We also see fierce opposition right away, and it is woven throughout the book of Acts. Okay, in Cyprus, they, they, they make it to that island, Cyprus, off the coast of the Mediterranean, and there's um, Elemis is there, all right, the magician who deals with dark things. His name, Bar-Jesus, Bar, son of Jesus, son of Jesus, and he tries to persuade Sergius Paulus a dignitary on the island, not to listen to the gospel. Chapter 13, verse 8. 
And what does Paul say? Here's something we learn about what he says. What does he say? Oh, that's okay. We all have different opinions. Bar Jesus, right? This magician, he believes that this is wrong, but we and Sergius Paulus, we think it's right. So let's agree to disagree. Does he say that? No. What does he say? You, Bar Jesus, are son of the devil. You're a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, and he struck him blind as an apostle who had the power from God to do so to those who opposed the gospel. And by the way, that was not a matter of Paul losing his temper. We read he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he strikes the man blind, and the man goes blind. Yeah. I say amen too. And as I said before, I wish I had that power to people who oppose the gospel. There'd be a lot of blind people walking around. (laughs) Application for us, okay? Tone is very important, no doubt. Our tone is important. We need to be sure we're led by the Spirit when we speak hard words, that we're led by God. Because there is a place and there are times in our very tolerant postmodern world which is incredibly intolerant, by the way. Amen? Tolerance? Really? There are times when we must say, you are a son of the devil. Your message is a message of unrighteousness. This is satanic teaching. This is false doctrine, and you, my friend, are to be opposed That's a lesson we learn. Nevertheless, tone is important. Amen? The way I proclaim the truth from here is probably not the way you want to talk to your neighbor. This is the church. This is the pulpit of Jesus Christ. This is his pulpit. We declare it. We herald it. So the tone is going to be different, I believe, here than it is on the street with a neighbor or a loved one. Now, last time in Antioch, Pisidia, Acts chapter 13, verse 42, as read, I'll read this, follow along. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Speaking to them, they were urging them to continue in the grace of God. You know, notice what Paul didn't say here. Okay, when there's a great positive response to the, the gospel, what he didn't say is, oh, this is wonderful. You know, my preaching is, has really been hitting home lately. <laughs> um, it's great to see you all believing. No, what does he do? Look, they exhort them. They urge them to stay in the grace of God. To stay, to remain in the grace of God. Why? Because there are so many who receive the word of faith, the gospel, with great joy. They receive it with joy. But when testings come, when trials arise, you're faced with the love of the world. You're faced with the love of money. They fall away. They fall away. So he encourages them. He exhorts them to continue to stay in. The grace of God. You know what? We're always excited about someone making a profession of faith. New believer comes along. They're full of zeal. They're full of joy. It's a wonderful thing. 
they must be exhorted to continue on, to persevere. You know, they must be exhorted. The battle starts now. The battle doesn't begin until you're saved, and you'll be struggling against what? Sin the rest of your life. There's no struggle against sin before you're saved. Maybe getting caught. But grieving God, there's no struggle until the God resides within you. So we urge, we exhort, we encourage to persevere because Satan hates you now worse than he ever did before. Because you're owned by the blood of Christ. This is what they do. Perseverance, as I said earlier, is an hourly battle, a daily battle, a weekly battle, a lifelong battle. That's why attendance in church is vital. I don't know how some of you who make it in once a month can endure the week. I don't. So Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God, gospel grace, We all must persevere. We all must conquer. Jesus said seven letters to the seven churches until the end. And the warning to persevere is a means of God's grace that enables us to do so. Because you'll ask the question, well, if God saves us and seals us, and he says no one can snatch you out of my hand, why all the warnings? Once again, they serve as a means to his end. So persevere conquer to the end. That's what I want to hear from you to me. Amen? So they exhort. See, to be an overcomer is to be a Christian. A true believer, not a mere said believer. Look at 1 John 5, 5. 1 John 5, 5. That's okay. That's all right. 1 John 5, 5. Did I give it to you? Okay. Well, there it is. See, we got time. We we all going to be here all day, amen? You want to be here all day? All right. Well, good, then we're in no rush. 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The only one who frees us from bondage. The only one through whom we receive the forgiveness of sins. That is gospel grace. Chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Look at it. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. He says, continue on, persevere in gospel grace. That word freed is the same word as justified. To be justified is to be declared free of all what? Blame. That's the heart of the gospel, friends. Justification by faith alone. The heart and soul of the gospel and forgiveness comes through Christ alone for all who are justified by faith alone. Not faith in faith, but the substance of our faith, Jesus the Christ, son of the living God. The law cannot justify. Verse 39, the law cannot justify you. Is there anything wrong with the law? No, there's nothing wrong with the law. 
The commandments of God are good. They're holy. They're right. They're just. The problem is with human beings. The problem is is with, with people, human sin. The law of God is holy. It is perfect, but it demands perfect, flawless obedience every moment of your life. And guess what? You're done. You're doomed. You've already failed. And if you think you haven't, you're a liar, says God. Anyone who says he has not sinned is a liar. So you're guilty of lying. And you're going to die, which is a proof that you're a sinner. Because the consequence of sin is death, guaranteed. The law can't save. You know, the book of James says we, stum- we all stumble in many ways. You know who he's addressing? Believers. Believers, the book of James. We all stumble in many ways, but you see, all that unbelievers can do is stumble all the way because anything that is not of faith is sin. So God, the judge, justifies all who stand by faith in Christ, the one who died, the one who was raised for sinners. He is the one who declares us free of all blame. Freed, justified. Continue on in that message. Continue on in that truth. That's the exhortation. We receive no credit for salvation. Can anybody raise their hand and take credit for believing? All the glory goes where? To God. It's not by doing that you're right with God. That's the gospel message. That's the message we're to continue in. It's not by doing right. It's but by trusting. We trust God who is right. We cannot earn it. We must what? Receive it. It's a gift. The gift of the gospel Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, you probably still don't believe that. That's the problem of pride. You'll never break yourself of pride, but only God can. Unbelieving pride, that is. And hopefully, he will bring you to the place of salvation today if you don't believe that. So that is the word that Paul preached. And as he preached faithfully... And anytime you preach faithfully or declare the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully, it will infuriate the unbelieving world. Notice, they were driven out at the end of chapter 13 of Pisidian Antioch. And take note, they did not tuck their tail between their legs and crawl away. Okay, look at what they did. Verse 51, chapter 13. They shook off the dust from their feet against them, and then they went to Iconium. That's a sign of displeasure and disassociation. But notice the response of those who believe. Verse 52. The disciples, what were they filled with? Joy and the Holy Spirit. So now they move in an easterly direction towards the great city of Iconium. Now they're at this point about 100 miles southeast 
of Pisidian Antioch, that's modern-day Turkey, Galatia particularly, verse 1, they've arrived at Iconium carrying the same message. The message doesn't change, people. Amen? And notice the, the, the ministerial pattern is the same. Here, they enter into the local synagogue. Verse 1, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, Jews and Gentiles. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. You face that with your family when you came to faith in Jesus? Family members or friends trying to embitter you from the truth of the gospel against the brethren? Of course you did. And you will. But the opposition, notice it did not hinder Paul and Barnabas. Instead, we read that they stayed in the city and they continued. Verse 3, therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was, ter who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So here they are staying on, correcting false witness as they bear true witness. All of this is an example for us to this day. We don't have apostolic power. You're not going to blind anyone. You're not going to perform signs, miracles, and wonders. That, those signs and wonders, were to authenticate God's spokesmen, and it was, they were always accompanied with the word of God. Signs and wonders, followed by the proclamation of the gospel. Proclamation of the gospel, followed by signs and wonders. Signs of an, of an apostle. His agents of revelation. He did the very same thing for his Old Testament prophets. Miracles also served as proof that Paul was a true apostle. Because what was the accusation against him? He didn't walk with Jesus as the other 11 did, that he wasn't an apostle. But he proved his ministry and his call by God over and over again. One of those signs was performance of these miracles. Are you with me? Now, again, we see that growth of the church occurs in the midst of opposition. That is, people who hate us. You think the church is going to stop growing because the, the, the populace hates you, your message, and above all, the God you serve? No. We have opponents everywhere. It's not only Islamic terrorists, friends. We have enemies surrounding us, people who hate the gospel. Now, we are to love them in the name of Jesus, amen? You love them in the name of Jesus, proclaim the gospel, yes, but we must be realistic. We have opponents, opponents in the media, opponents in the universities, opponents in the political sphere, in the business sphere. I think about you people all week, every week, as you go off to work, in the midst of hostile, a hostile, unbelieving world, in the pressures that you face, and you are prayed for. So there's a great battle going on for the minds and the hearts of people. That's what's behind it all. You will be opposed. So the message 
goes out here in the midst of opposition and struggle, and we need to be prepared. We need courage. We need strength. And notice in the text, we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Verses 4 to 6. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding regions. And there they continued to preach the same message. Amen? So notice, sometimes... Wisdom and discernment tell, tell us to stay where you are for a long time. Continue on in the work. It's tough, it's hard, there's opposition, stay. Verse 3, we see that. Other times, wisdom says, get out. Verse 6. What are we called to pray for that oftentimes Christians don't pray for? Wisdom and discernment. Pray for wisdom. Don't raise your hand, but think about it. How often do you pray for wisdom? It's one of my primary prayers and discernment. When you all ask me, what can I pray for you about? What do I say? Wisdom, discernment, and that we remain faithful to the call. There's the prayer list. And they continued. What did, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 to his disciples? Look at it. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, what did Jesus mean by that? Because they certainly went through all the towns of Israel. Well, he's most likely referring to his coming judgment upon Israel and the destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. And it certainly serves as a vivid foreshadowing of his coming at the end of the age. As you go on, they reject, move on to the next town, he says. Verse 8, at Lystra, here they are now, at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and he began to walk. You know, th this is a pagan city, friends, with a pantheon of false gods. A pagan, pagan city. So that is to say, these people, they did not know the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, or the prophets. There's no point in quoting Isaiah. There's no point in quoting part of the Psalms as Paul had done elsewhere before a Jewish audience. There, there's no point of biblical familiarity with these pagans. So this is an entirely different context. So, by the power of God, he performs this miracle. And it's a count that looks very familiar, doesn't it? The language is the same, the, ver the verbiage, the, the eye contact, the gaze upon him. He was, he was, blind, he was uh, crippled from birth. Takes us back to Acts 3. Peter there was in front of the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. And almost the, the identical thing happens here. Peter stood outside of a Jewish temple. 
He, he declares the power of Christ to restore this man. He stands up, he walks, he leaps. And here, where is Paul? The city of Lystra, and what was outside of the city of Lystra? A pagan temple. It's a temple, but it's a pagan temple to the pantheon, pantheon of gods, Zeus and Hermes. Temple of the gods, a.k.a. Jupiter and Mercury. The gods of Jupiter and Mercury, known to the Greeks as Zeus and Hermes. So Luke is pointing out that this gospel isn't only powerful in Jerusalem in front of the temple, this gospel has the power to transform lives in front of a pagan temple in a Gentile land. Same message. And he approaches it in a different way to different people. And again, to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Gentile I become as a Gentile. So here now is an example of how they dealt with deifying superstition. Deifying, ma making creatures into gods or thinking that, that creatures are gods. And they're very superstitious. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, raising up this crippled man, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, verse 13, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Why? This is strange. Well, about 50 years earlier, the Latin poet Ovid narrated his tale, The Metamorphosis. It goes like this. The supreme god Jupiter, that is Zeus to the Greeks, the supreme god Zeus and his son Hermes once visited this hill country district of Lystra. This was the story disguised as mortal men. They went from home to home. They went to a thousand homes seeking hospitality and they found none until they were finally offered lodging in this little tiny cottage of a peasant couple. They're invited in. Later on, the gods rewarded them but they destroyed all of the homes of those who rejected these visitors with a great flood. It's mythology, children. This didn't really happen. This was a story that the people had for many, many years. We have our own little myths and stories, like, like Frosty the Snowman. You know that snowmen don't walk and talk, amen? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So this couple, in response, they, they asked if they could possibly live the same length of time so they wouldn't have to look at one another's graves. They're granted their wish, and they, they had turned this couple's home into a temple. 
That, that, that's the story. So in that context, the people respond, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. This time, we had better treat them well, lest they drown us as they did our ancestors. See this superstitious nonsense? The world is filled with this nonsense today, just in a different context. Full of superstitious Nonsense. So the high priest of the, of the local shrine attempts to celebrate them as gods and sacrifice a bull in their name. Here's Paul and Barnabas. Their response, verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes. They rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, men, 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 why are you doing these things? Look, we are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you, same message, the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. It's time to put away, he says, your foolishness. This is vanity. This is emptiness. These are vaporous practices. This is folly. Put away this mythical apparition, so this spiritual fairy tale, and turn to the living God. That's how he deals with it. Who, notice, made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Evolution, that's a myth. That's a man-made myth. If you buy into that, I take you to this text, this people, in this day. You better repent and call on this God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. There was three amens out of that. You better not hold on to any view of theistic evolution, my friends. That's not God's mess. That's man's mess. Repent. Verse 16. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What does Paul do here? He gives them a lecture on the divine providence of God. Put away your idols. Come to the living God. Now, remember, he's going to do the same thing when he gets to Athens, Greece. When he gets to Athens and all the philosophers of the day, Acts chapter 17, when we get there, look at what he says to them. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, verse 30, chapter 17, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus came to this earth to be crucified and bear the wrath of God on a Roman cross so that his blood will cover you and by faith and trust in him, you are declared righteous. You need a substitute. You'll never make it to heaven on your own. There is no tolerance and acceptance for their deifying superstition here on this day. Paul hits them hard. You know, some, 
some professing Christians in our day who buy into the political correctness of our day would rather slap a coexist sticker on their bumper so as not to cause any division. And you know, if some people come to faith in Christ, well, that's great, but I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to blend in, coexist. Listen to what one missionary says. Quote, well do I remember being at a Buddhist temple facing the wrath of monks and their lay supporters in an area where we had started an evangelistic work. Our accusers said to us that they had lived in peace for so many centuries that now we had come and ruined the peace of the community as we knew that this was partly true. We who aimed to be instruments of peace had become agents of disharmony. What did Jesus say? I did not come to earth to bring peace, but a sword to divide a father from a son and a mother from her daughter-in-law. Because I am truth, the substance of truth, and truth divides. But it also harmonizes, doesn't it? That's why you're here, I hope. He goes on. For this reason, even some Christians are not enthusiastic about evangelism. They feel conversion is desirable, oh yes, but if it is going to cause so much disruption to families and societies, they ought, we ought then to downplay its importance, end of quote. That's buying into the rhetoric. Why did these people, they're opposing Paul, view the presentation of the gospel as ruining the peace of the community as it did here according to this missionary's record. Well, let me answer. It's the very same reason. We see it right here in Antioch, Iconium, so on. They, they stone Paul and leave him for dead. This is their response, verse 19. They stone Paul and leave him for dead. What's the reason? This is always the case. Because they were idolaters from the beginning as all human beings are, and the preference for fallen humanity is, Romans 1, to exchange the truth of God for a, for a lie who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Have things changed? No. Superstitious idiocy, creature-worshiping folly, People, Romans 1 says, who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, refusing to give thanks to the one true God, they become futile in their speculations until finally, we read, their foolish hearts were darkened and finally, ultimately, God turns them over to a depraved mind. That's known as the wrath of divine abandonment. God leaves you to yourself. You want to worship animals? You want to worship creatures? And, for, and forsake me, the creator? I leave you to yourself. Hardened in unbelief. Hardened in your superstition. Repent if that's you. Turn to the living God and you shall be saved. The only true incarnation of the living God 
happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem in the womb of Mary when the eternal Logos, the Word, took upon himself flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, who lived in perfect obedience to the law of God and was delivered into the hands of unbelieving men, was crucified, and he simultaneously, as he was being nailed to the cross, hanging there in darkness, was bearing the wrath of God against sin and sinners. Providing the great exchange, his righteousness on your account, all your sins upon his, only for those who believe. The gospel, this is the message, it doesn't change. Verse 20, but while the disciples stood around him, this is, Paul is stoned, right? He's left for dead. The disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. What a man this guy was. Have you ever been hit just with a rock? In the skull? We, we experienced that as kids on the playground. We, throw, we have rock fights. I mean, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's, the, well, that's why I am like I am, I think. <laughs> I've been hit too many times. But to actually be stoned by numerous men and left for dead, the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby, to Derby. After they had preached the gospel to the city, notice he doesn't stop. He perseveres. Preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith, saying, it's only through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had, if you think that God's will for you is not to suffer, you've bought into some bad theology. In this life, Jesus said, you will suffer, but rejoice. I've overcome the world. You're guaranteed heaven, but you won't get there without suffering. If the master suffered, his servants will suffer for the sake of the gospel. When in, in, uh, they must enter the kingdom of God. And then when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Two more features. We're almost wrapping. We're almost done. Two more features. Two things they did with new believers. First, they appoint elders in every church. That is a plurality of leaders. This is no one-man show deal in the church. You know, the Moses model, they call it. Well, God talks to me, I'm the pastor, and you, you all just do what I say. No, we have a plurality of elders here, biblically qualified. Not one man, a plurality thereof, and that's what they do. They point leadership. They lead God's people. They feed. They equip the sheep. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my flock. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Third time, do you love me? Tend to my lambs. You feed God's people God's word. Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth. You want to know, again, in case you don't know what a spirit-led and spirit-powered church is, in case you're visiting here, you go, this doesn't seem like a spirit-led church because people aren't acting ridiculous. If you want to know what a spirit-led, spirit-empowered church is, according to Jesus, the church that is spirit-led preaches Christ. You don't preach 
The Holy Spirit doesn't bear witness of himself. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to bear witness of me. That's a spirit-led church. And they preach the gospel everywhere they go because they're spirit-filled, spirit-led. Notice they encourage believers to persevere in faith through many tribulations. To keep trusting him. Are you going through difficulties today, beloved? I know many of you are. You're going through difficulties. It's hard. Do you feel like you can't go on? There will be days that you will feel like that. I exhort you, by God's grace, the strength that he will provide in the midst of your weakness to persevere. Run to the source. Go to him. Admit, Lord, I'm weak. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. He already knows that. When you verbalize it, that'll encourage you to press in and experience his strength to move you on by faith. So go to him. Don't backtrack. Don't backslide. Persevere. You know, perseverance is lacking when you begin to buy into the rhetoric that the culture is pushing. Contrary to the gospel. Don't buy it. Resist it. Finally, verses 24 to 28. They passed through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had what? Accomplished. That is fulfilled. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Why? This is where they started. This, this was this, the seedbed of their ministry. This is where it all began. Can we put the map back up? My little light doesn't work on here, so I'm, I'll, I'll be... They start in Antioch. Here they go down and they board a ship. Cyprus, preach. Cyprus, Pamphos, preach. Perga, preach. Antioch, preach. Iconium, preach. Lystra, preach. Derby, preach. Let's go back. Let's exhort them. We've suffered a lot of persecution. Let's exhort them and remind them that when you follow Christ, you also will be persecuted. Encourage, encourage, preach, encourage. Back home. And they rest. That took a year. This is where their partners in Christ are. Antioch. This is home. And while at home, he's going to do what God has called him to do. And that is, my friends, to rest. And I'm not talking about taking a nap. And now taking a break from ministry. We're not talking about that kind of rest. See, Rest in the fact that God, who called you to the ministry, will bear fruit of the ministry through you. You don't need to meddle. You don't need to play Holy Spirit. Just do what I've called you to do. Leave the results, God says, to me. Don't manipulate ministry. Don't manipulate tactics 
within the church service so as to get people to appeal to something emotionally so it appears as though there's fruit in the ministry. Just be faithful to the call, be faithful to the gospel, and go home and rest in me, says God. Amen? So we will be tempted to change the message. Don't do that. Faith requires us to do our duty, to carry out that which God has called us to do. We've seen these men do just that. And then realize at the point of fulfillment right there in verse 26, all of this now must be committed to the Lord and I can rest in him that he will bear fruit. Our job is to be faithful. Don't mess, don't meddle, don't manipulate, just be faithful. So all the things we've witnessed through the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, um, the things that Paul says, the things he does, the hope that he has, the rest he enjoys, all require the faith that relinquishes our ability to control our situation or try to control it and turn these things over to God and to gain the strength that he provides in order to what? Persevere. To persevere. To conquer to the end. And I close with this. We opened with it, I'll close with it. Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127, the, they labor in vain who built it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives his beloved even in his sleep. We rest in him. So our labors are not in vain. God does watch over the city, we see it. He does build up the house. So let us entrust our labors to him and him alone. Amen? There's Paul's first missionary journey. Glory to God. Father, we thank you for this record yet again. Help us to apply these truths to our own lives, Lord. May we not fall prey to meddling, to trying to manipulate the message, to changing the message. Help us that we would not fall prey to the tactics of a culture that hates you, but help us to be a light that shines in the midst of darkness and as savoring salt in the midst of a lost and dying world. For we once were dead in our transgressions and sins, but by grace you've made us alive in Christ. Help us to proclaim that truth, to live it out for your glory and the good of your people, the church, and the salvation of souls. In Jesus' name, amen.